This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. A natural consequence of being a nation of united individual states is that it creates 50 different laboratories of democracy. Each state decides how best to serve its citizens, and in turn, by what means it will tax its citizens to pay for those services. This state prerogative to tax and spend has the benefit of creating competition among states to attract more taxpaying residents with its value proposition. While a high tax state can assert it offers better services and a low tax state can lay claim to lower cost of living, the arbiter of a state's value are the people themselves. While citizens can pick candidates in elections, a far more powerful way to express a preference is to opt to migrate from one state to another, bringing with you all future taxable income. The effect of this migration in the long run can be either to boost a state's tax base or drain it of its vital revenue. How well is Massachusetts competing with its neighbor states? And how are changes in tax law, such as the proposed millionaire's tax, likely to affect the movement of those with higher income who invest in and create new companies in the future. My guest today is Andrew McCoola, former research analyst of Pioneer Institute and current graduate student at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. Andrew's most recent research paper, A Timely Tax Cut, How New Hampshire is Taking Advantage of Massachusetts' Graduated Income Tax Proposal, maps current interstate migration and looks for a correlation between state tax levels and the direction of income flows. Andrew will share with us the findings of his paper and provide color on why residents may vote with their feet. When I return, I will be joined by research analyst Andrew McCoola. Hubwonk is a production of Pioneer Institute, a Boston-based think tank that seeks to improve the quality of life in Massachusetts and beyond. Pioneer is a 501c3 organization that relies on your support please visit pioneerinstitute.org to make a tax-deductible donation today. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Pioneer Institute's former economics research analyst and current Harvard Graduate School of Design master's degree student, Andrew McCoola. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Andrew. Joe, thanks so much for having me back. Well, first, let me congratulate you on starting your master's degree in urban planning, I believe. Uh, how's your studying going so far? It's going well, yeah. I a lot of requirements this semester, but uh get to the, the juicy stuff soon, and it's, it's you know, important foundation. So. Well, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that you were able to take some time out of your uh, studying to be with us. I want to explore the findings of your uh, newest research paper entitled, A Timely Tax Cut, How New Hampshire is Taking Advantage of Massachusetts' Graduated Income Tax Proposal. All right, we've covered this topic in different ways in the past on Hubwonk, but I want to give the listeners uh, and, and viewers, now we're uh, uh, viewing, we're now recording the visual of our of our show. I want to give everyone a, some background on tax rates uh, on what's being proposed. What are the relative tax rates in Massachusetts and New Hampshire? Let's start with uh, Massachusetts. 
We used to be known as Taxachusetts. Uh, where are we now? Right. So I think in, importantly for our purposes, uh, voters passed a ballot measure in the year 2000 that would lower the income tax rate from 5.9 to 5.0 percent over the next three years. Um, it was later tied to benchmarks and revenue growth, slowing down the tax cut so that it only reached 5.0% last year, actually, in 2020. Okay. Uh, so I, I think that we've taken a kind of incremental approach, but we have uh, cut income taxes in recent years. Uh, New Hampshire uh, has had a 5% tax on interest and dividends for a while, but what they don't tax is... Uh, wage income, right? So it's only the interest and dividends you would earn on a financial asset um, that are are um, taxed, at least for individuals. Corporations is a different matter. Um, but the tax rate is 5% on interest and dividends like it is in Massachusetts today. Okay. So that seems like a stark contrast. We have 5% on income here in Massachusetts. So that's the lowest it's been for a while. It just got to 5% recently, uh, but that's a flat tax for everyone. Every dollar earned in Massachusetts is taxed at that 5% rate. In New Hampshire, it's zero. Uh, they do tax uh, some income that comes from uh, interest and dividends, but uh, not from income. So that seems like a pretty stark uh, difference. I want to get to a different uh, aspect of, of the tax code. I, I mentioned that ours is a flat tax rate. Uh, your paper talks about a proposal for a graduated rate. Uh, I'm fairly sure we have a, a, a federal tax rate that is graduated, but explain to our listeners, what does that mean? What do we have now flat and what what is being proposed? That's right. So the rate itself, Massachusetts levies in terms of, of income taxes, personal income taxes, 5% is, is um, relatively on par with the average for uh, state governments. Um, what's relatively uncommon is we have a flat tax. So we tax people at 5% of their income, regardless of if they're making, you know, 40,000 a year or 400,000 a year. Um, and that's, uh, so in the, especially in the context of the Northeast, that makes us pretty unique, actually. So um, graduate taxes sounds like uh, people who have more money might pay a higher rate. Um, I want to talk about the sort of the one aspect of uh, raising taxes is um, raising taxes on everyone is unpopular. Uh, I would say the flat tax does have the benefit of, of constraining legislators inclined to raise taxes uh, by, uh, it's very hard to raise taxes on everyone. To me, graduated income taxes seem a bit like a, a divide and conquer. We identify a group we'd like to raise the taxes on uh, and everyone, everyone votes yes to vote uh, to tax the other guy. Uh, do I have a good sense of uh, the power of a graduated tax? Yeah, you you do, Joe. No one thinks that you know someone else can spend their money uh, more effectively or better than than they can. But it's appealing that to take a small segment of the population and say they're going to be paying more because they're not paying enough now, um, and. Uh, the rest of, of the people are going to accrue the benefits in terms of, you know, public services. Um, I think where that gets complicated is, um, in part, uh, the effect on on the revenue volatility that comes with, you know, having a, a tax that's not quite as broad based as, say, a sales tax. Um, and so, 
you know, income taxes have been shown to lead to, you know, kind of uh, steeper drops in some uh, tax revenue collections in, as a whole uh, during recessions, um, especially the Great Recession, uh, actually. Okay. So I, I want to uh, drill down a little more into uh, what we mean by graduated tax. It means we're, we're uh, uh, taxing higher income people at a higher rate in general and uh, lower income people at a lower rate. Who are, what is being proposed in Massachusetts? What is this so-called millionaire's tax um, and what is its rate? Right. So the proposal in Massachusetts would levy a 4% surtax on annual personal income over a million dollars. That's both wage income, capital gains, uh, you know, he's selling a business, etc. Um, and this proposal has a really interesting history. Um, it was, it's a pretty uh, bottom-up proposal, but it was actually struck down by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in, in 2018 before being rekindled as a legislative petition uh, the following year. Um, and changing the Massachusetts Constitution... Um, which this tax would do, uh, is a very uh, iterative process. Um, and so it's it's not going on the statewide ballot until the fall of 2022. And voters have a chance to weigh in before it's signed into law. Um, so we, sh- we shouldn't panic right now. Uh, this is something that's coming, as you say, from from the bottom up, actually from the legislators up. Where did it start? Um, well, let me take a step back. Uh, we have a 5% um, income tax now, um, and we've just gone through a, a recession, uh, through a, a epidemic uh, that had a slight recession. Uh, the economy shut down for a time, uh, and there was a lot of concern that with the uh, depressed economy would be a depressed uh, revenue flow. Uh, I've read that the state has actually had a surplus of revenue. In fact, a surprise to the upside on revenue. Um, is do you see this uh, interest in raising the tax rate on millionaires uh, being driven by a need for revenue? Is there a need for revenue in Massachusetts right now? Right. So, like I alluded to, you know, this proposal has been on the table since um, 2015 or so. So, I'm I'm not sure it's it's uh, accurate to argue that this is you know. The reason why this proposal was put forward is not because of the pandemic, right? Um, but I also think that, uh, you know, we we've there were some temporary impacts on uh, the state revenues from COVID, but our our bounce back has been much quicker than in the Great Recession, right? Because the the economic recession that we've had because of COVID reflects the presence of the virus, whose presence has wavered, you know, a lot over the course of the last year and a half. Whereas, you know, kind of more deep-rooted problems with our financial system characterized or caused much of uh, the previous recession's woes. Um, And so it's true that currently uh, Massachusetts uh, tax collections are, are essentially at record highs. Um, in a lot of major categories. Um, and on top of that, we have um, a large amount of federal stimulus dollars uh, still to spend in the Bay State. Um, so I, I think one argument that 
um, opponents of the tax hike make is that we don't meet, we don't necessarily need this added revenue right now in kind of an urgent way. Um, that's true. Yeah. That's fair. So uh, I'll accept that if this has been uh, coming down the line since 2015 uh, and the economic uh, situation has sometimes been better, sometimes been worse, it's not really motivated by an immediate need for revenue, but rather a, perhaps a long-term uh, desire for additional revenue to be spent at the state level. So let's take it out of the uh, current events and say, okay, this is the long-term direction of Massachusetts. We'd like to tax those who make more than a million dollars at a higher rate than those who make less than a million dollars. But let's talk about then, uh, let's shift to the um, uh, focus of your paper, uh, which doesn't just merely look at the relative tax rates of New Hampshire and Massachusetts. It talks about some other states and their relative tax rates. But the crux of your paper talks about what I like to call uh, the footloose nature of the individuals within each state. That is, each of us has a choice as to which state we want to live in. And sometimes tax rates have an influence on who moves where. Uh, tell us, uh, from a 10,000 feet view, what your conclusions or your observations were on the relationship between the relative tax rate of a state and the relative inflow or outflow of high earners to those states. Yeah, let me say, you know, the, the tax cut in New Hampshire combined with um, Massachusetts's uh, legislative initiative here, or constitutional amendment, really, um, I think some folks are concerned that it will lead to, you know, a, a decrease in economic activity, decrease of investment in Massachusetts by making it harder uh, or less, you know, economical to create jobs and, and invest uh, in businesses. So we can actually measure how the tax bases of certain states are changing because of people moving from one state to another in a given year. Um, and that's exactly what I've done in this paper. You can see on a graph that in a lot of cases, capital flows between a given pair of states correspond quite closely to changes in tax policy in those states. And you know it doesn't necessarily flip the sign right away in you know which uh, state is the net receiver of more of those tax dollars, but it's a long-term effect um, that plays out over 10 or 15 years, which is one thing that makes you know tax proposals like this so insidious. Yeah, I, I was struck by your paper. You do uh, quantify those outflows. Um, and when we talk about, this is before any changes, either the ones in Massachusetts currently proposed or the ones in New Hampshire proposed. Uh, but in 2019, uh, two years ago, the outflow of income uh, from Massachusetts to New Hampshire in one year was $426 million outflow from Massachusetts to New Hampshire. Now we can't know the motive for moving north, mm -hmm. but it can't, it can't be the weather. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, how is it that you know uh, it is the tax rate? Is there any other confounding factor that you think might contribute to people moving out of Massachusetts towards New Hampshire? Absolutely. I, you know, Taxes are a part of the story, but I think a big one is the cost of living. And New Hampshire's tax rates, you know, on wage income at least, have been zero for as long as I can remember. But you know, even when you when you start cutting Massachusetts's tax rates, um, as we have done in the past 20 years, 
there's still this this gap here. You know, New Hampshire was not uh, New Hampshire has not been sending uh, folks to Massachusetts on net as long as we've been keeping track or the IRS has been keeping track. Um, so, and I think you'd also see that kind of cost of living, cost of housing uh, concerns start to creep in in places like Rhode Island. Rhode Island has, you know, cut taxes more aggressively than we have in the past, you know, 10 or 15 years. But there are certainly other factors in the mix because, you know, we can see that, you know, people are on net um, moving from Massachusetts to Rhode Island. And despite their changes in the tax code, the, the top marginal tax rate in Rhode Island is still higher than it is here. Um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting to see how, you know, oftentimes you need to go deeper than just the, you know, headline tax rate and understand how changes in tax rates over time can affect things because people are also taking into account things like the cost of living and family connections and job growth, et cetera. I think it's worth mentioning also, uh, um, uh, you talk about the cost of living. I think those who assume our t higher tax rate means better services, perhaps better schools or better roads, better bridges, infrastructure. Um, I've been to New Hampshire. It's less than an hour away in a car from uh, downtown Boston. Uh, their bridges and roads look fine to me. Um, do they have problems with uh, services? And frankly, if you, you have the data, how do they collect revenue to support their state's uh, requirements? Yeah, so New Hampshire does kind of uh, conform to some of the uh, kind of low tax state uh, paradigms in that it, it spends a lot less than Massachusetts on a per capita basis. Um, I'd also say that New Hampshire has, you know, the lowest poverty rate in the country. Um, so compared to you know how much if your if your goal is to provide a certain uh, base level of of services um, that ensure a, a certain quality of life, New Hampshire might not have the same needs as um, most other states. And Massachusetts is a is a low uh, poverty state too, but I think it also is is less homogenous than New Hampshire in terms of socioeconomic status. Um, that said, I, I think a lot of the difference in terms of the level of spending between New Hampshire and Massachusetts still reflects policy differences, not just different needs. New Hampshire is the only state east of the Mississippi that doesn't provide some sort of public preschool. Um, they're also pretty strict about tying costs for services to the people using those services. You know, higher education in New Hampshire is largely funded by tuition as opposed to transfers from the state general fund. Pension funds for state workers are mostly funded by the workers' salaries while they're working, as opposed to regular contributions from the state. Um, and there are several examples of that sort of uh, cost-cutting measure that had, has uh, uh, saved the state money. So it's a, a, we, we believe in a federalist system, so you have different states with uh, different needs and different priorities. Um, so you, you make a great case that there's more to the story than just uh, marginal tax rates uh, at the state level. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Let's talk about the uh, the millionaire's tax, the additional 4% tax on those earning more than a million dollars. They're going to be the ones who are affected, and they're the ones who are likely to uh, potentially vote with their feet. 
what's the profile of someone who uh, earns more than a million dollars in a year? Uh, is it a rich banker or is it someone else? Right. Well, I, I think, you know, there may be a fair share of rich bankers, but prior work that Pioneer has conducted has also shown that, that you know, a, a large plurality of the people who, you know, make a, a million dollars in a year, in a given 10-year period or so, um, do so only once. Um, that's based on IRS data. And I think that's a, a fairly good indicator that a lot of these people are, are cashing out on uh, investments they've made so that they can either retire or they're selling a business or a home or what have you. And so I, I think an ostensible goal of uh, New Hampshire's policy here was to, uh, in cutting the interest and dividends tax, was to lower the tax burden on uh, some uh, older people and also attract um, more taxpayers that are, are going to uh, consume a lot uh, in New Hampshire and pay a lot in property taxes as well. Um, but I think it's more complicated than just, you know, there's a banker, there's, you know, a real estate developer, et cetera. So uh, you're, that's a very interesting piece of data. We've covered it a bit on Hubwonk in the past. So people who earn a million dollars in general and over a 10-year period do it only once, which suggests they're not earning in an income in a salary of more than a million dollars, but rather it's what we would call a liquidity event. They've sold a house, they've sold a business, something that perhaps they've built over the course of their lifetime, and they want to essentially cash out, perhaps retire, perhaps do something else. Um, but even if it is bankers, isn't it people who are uh, creating businesses by investing and hoping to profit from taking some risks and investing? In other words, isn't it people who are creating businesses uh, and creating jobs that are most apt to be affected by a tax on ultimately their their success, their ultimate cash out? Right. And I think that's, you know, that very reason is has been one of the strongest arguments in the past for either reducing income taxes or uh, looking for, you know, alternative ways of um, taxing the economic activity that comes out of a place. Um, and I think the, the, you know, the economic literature might be divided about how exactly to implement something like this, but there is evidence that, that state level taxes on income, well, tend to reduce incentives to earn income. And, you know, that's something we need to weigh against other forms of taxation um, that have different effects. Um, sales uh, or consumption-based taxes um, might uh, overly burden uh, certain people, depending on, on what they're buying. Uh, property taxes might be um, hard to avoid in the short term, um, might be relatively stable even during recessions when a lot of people are out of work. So um, it's a trade-off that I think, uh, you know, uh, warrants some more discussion. But in general, I'd say, you know, people like earning income, uh, taxing it is means 
less income, less work, less investment for uh, in the, into the economy. Yes, uh, you know, it seems intuitively obvious that you tax something, you get less of it. I think uh, policymakers understand, uh, let's say in the form of sin taxes, uh, they tax tobacco or alcohol with the stated goal of trying to reduce its use. It seems to follow that taxing income would either make people uh, choose to have uh, to be compensated differently or take their income with them to a place where it's taxed less. Uh, out of curiosity, does in fact New Hampshire tax um, and must raise revenue in other forms? It's in the form of um, consumption tax, I guess, sales tax and property tax. Uh, is that how they raise their revenue in New Hampshire? Uh, largely so. They actually also have some um, higher business taxes than we do in Massachusetts. But you're right that instead of a broad-based sales tax, they have um, some you know, more targeted excise taxes. And also, one thing that's pretty unique about New Hampshire is they also um, have state-owned, uh, you know, kind of stores that do a lot of business to out-of-state customers. And a famous example is um, the slew of liquor stores that are right over the Massachusetts border um, that, uh, you know, technically are not taxed, but it's New Hampshire collecting that sales revenue. And that's you know helps explain how almost 20% of uh, New Hampshire's uh, uh, kind of unrestricted revenue in a given year actually comes from uh, some of these sin taxes or other excise taxes. Good. So uh, Massachusetts pays its own income taxes and it pays some of New Hampshire's uh, alcohol taxes. Is that right? We're, we're uh... Um, helping uh, New Hampshire make ends meet with our when we drive north to uh, to the state-run uh, liquor store. Essentially, yes. You know, it's um, this sort of paradigm where um, New Hampshire draws uh, out-of-state customers to uh, essentially pay its tax bills um, is already happening on the kind of consumption side of of things. I enjoyed in your piece, you didn't just talk about New Hampshire and, and Massachusetts, as we've talked a little bit about uh, Connecticut and Rhode Island. Uh, we've had inflows from those two states. Uh, I was amazed to learn you even tracked um, New York and New Jersey. We've had substantial inflows from those uh, states as well because they have substantially higher uh, income tax on high uh, net worth individuals, $200 million roughly from each Massachusetts, uh, from uh, New York and New Jersey, respectively. Um, that's an impressive number. Um, would you conclude then that uh, New Hampshire and New York also decamp from those locations largely because of the uh, 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 relative tax rates, or are there other confounding issues in those in those cases? Yeah, I think that's certainly part of it. You know, there are um, even in in some parts of New York, you know, you could make a, a more bang for your buck argument. Uh, in Massachusetts, um, cost of living wise. But I think what's really striking to me is in the case of New York, you know, it used to be that that more, you know, adjusted gross income from migrating taxpayers was going from Massachusetts to New York. And then some point in the, the mid 2000s, you know, it changed sign. 
And in 2019, it's, you know, $170 million um, that uh, migrating New Yorkers are adding uh, to our tax base every year. Um, so that's substantial. And again, um, uh, there are two very, very uh, wealthy states uh, with high services. So really the, the major variable there between, let's say, New York City and, and uh, Metro Boston, if you will, if you will. Uh, is uh, cost of living and primarily uh, income tax. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm also fascinated. Um, I think it's still kind of, we're still kind of in this weird limbo with what effect the, the or how long-term the remote work revolution will last, which I think can certainly impact whether someone's willing to, you know, pack up and move to New Hampshire and, and have a longer commute to work. Um, but, you know, it's New York has certainly been hit harder, um, than most states in that regard. So it's going to be especially interesting to follow the tax flows between, uh, New York and Massachusetts in recent, in upcoming years. That's very interesting. Uh, we didn't really talk about it too much, but, um, mm -hmm. we did, we have talked in past Hubwonk episodes that, uh, COVID really made us aware of the fact that we could rem work remotely. Uh, and if you want to live in New Hampshire and enjoy the lower income tax uh, and you work in Boston, it's a, a heck of a commute. Uh, and if you only have to do that three days a week instead of five days a week, you may be more inclined to explore moving to New Hampshire. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. All right. So we're getting close to the end of our time together. I, I, I appreciate you taking time with me. Uh, how can our listeners and, and new viewers find your paper, read more about your work, and uh, and see the graphs for themselves. Um, it's all at pioneerinstitute.org is our recent work. Um, we do a lot of research into tax policy and, and broader economic opportunity issues. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. I appreciate your time, Andrew, and uh, best of luck with your studies. I hope you enjoy it. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on iTunes. If you'd like to help others find Hubwonk, it would be great if you would offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. It's always welcome if you'd like to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas for me or comments or suggestions for topics for future episodes, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.